Sometimes, in our zeal to do the right thing, to believe the right ideas, to be on the correct side of history, we actually end up doing more harm than good to the things we care about. Innocent people get hit by stray bullets fired in the fights we started to protect them. They turn out to be collateral damage in a culture war. Sometimes what's actually needed to restore sanity is less sloganeering, less certainty, less picking of fights, less demonising of different views, less storming of the ramparts, and more humility, more conversations that are genuinely free from bullshit, from posturing, conversations that are blunt and true, and sometimes, yes, just a little bit uncomfortable. G'day humans, fantastic chat for you today with uh, an iconic gentleman or a notorious gentleman, a man who is either a villain or a hero in the great 21st century saga of the cancel culture wars, Jesse Single, to whom I'll get in just a moment. I'm currently in lockdown in Sydney. Uh, Sydney is in its first full-scale lockdown of the city since the early days of the pandemic really since may of last year it's been more than 12 months that we've led fairly normal lives responding to outbreaks of coronavirus from hotel quarantine with more targeted lockdowns and limited ring fencing of suburbs and aggressive contact tracing and mass testing and all those kinds of tricky epidemiological ingenuities uh, but uh, unfortunately, this current outbreak, because of the Delta strain of the virus, it's so contagious that it was getting up ahead of the contact traces. So they put the city into lockdown for a couple of weeks. And yet, and yet, I am a delighted young gentleman today. I am over the moon because at last, what I've been banging my head against a brick wall calling for for at least eight months now, has come to pass, which is a recognition from the Federal Government of Australia that remaining a hermit kingdom in perpetuity is not desirable or feasible. Uh, At a meeting this morning, the first meeting after the Prime Minister got out of quarantine, it's a bit funny that the Prime Minister has to (laughs) self-isolate at home after he gets home, even though he's vaccinated, he's been abroad uh, on, uh, you know, businesses of state. And uh, I think it would just be a bad look if he didn't quarantine, even though the likelihood of one individual, I suppose it'd be a bad look if he became a super spreader, wouldn't it, the Prime Minister? But hey, if Donald Trump could do it, why not Scott Morrison? Anyway, back to the more important issue. He's, he's gotten out of his hotel quarantine and he's met with the leaders of the states and territories of Australia in, in this, these regular national cabinet meetings that they have where all the leaders of the, the states and territories come together with the federal government and chinwag about what the best way forward is given the status of the pandemic. This was an innovation that, that uh, the federal government came up with at the start of the pandemic last year. And they've come out of this saying... They have a roadmap to get back to normal life, an open country, a country that is actually engaged with the world instead of hunkering down in terror of coronavirus coming in. I've been saying for a long time, you will have heard it on this podcast and you will have heard me talking about it on ABC Radio if you listen to to that, that we can't continue demonising 
case numbers of coronavirus as if one single case is the same thing, regardless of whether or not you have a vaccinated population or an unvaccinated population, regardless of whether or not the cases in a nursing home or among young people. Australians have been sort of obsessively fixated on case numbers and making sure that case numbers remain zero because we're still in the mindset of what we were indoctrinated with in the early days of the pandemic, which is if you get one case, it's going to turn into two, four, eight, 16, 32, 64. It's going to get out of control. And before you know, the hospitals are going to be overwhelmed. We're all going to be like Lombardy. It's going to be like the way New York City was in March of 2020. Well, it could get out of control. But finding a way to make sure that it doesn't get out of control is precisely what it's now incumbent upon us to do, rather than simply saying we're going to keep case numbers at zero forever, because we're not. Not if we're going to have an economy, not if we're going to have a flourishing life, not if we're going to be wealthy and prosperous and outward looking and have relations with other countries and other family members. I mean, 30% of Australians were born abroad. A vast majority of us have close family members abroad. Were we just never going to visit them without rotting in a hotel room for two weeks when we come, every time we come back into the country? That wasn't feasible. And the conversation up until today, up until this morning, which is Friday, the 2nd of July, up until now the conversation has been, well, we're not going to open the borders until it's safe. And when journalists like myself ask the authorities, well, what, what does safe mean? They say, well, we're not going to do it till it's safe. We're going to rely on the appropriate health advice. So it becomes this infuriating tautology. We're not going to open till it's safe. Well, what does safe mean? Safe is what the health authorities deem to be safe. Well, hang on a second. If Australia had never had a case of the flu, of the regular old flu, and all of a sudden the flu cropped up in the rest of the world, would we just keep the borders closed to make sure that the flu never comes to Australia? Or at some point, would we look at the numbers? And quite a lot of people die of the flu. Thousands of people in Australia die of the flu every year. They haven't in the past few years because the borders have been closed and we've all been locked down and social distancing. But the correct question to ask moving forward for coronavirus is not how do we keep case numbers at zero, but how do we manage it as the endemic condition, the endemic virus, that it will inevitably become. Because even if everyone gets vaccinated, there are going to be some people for whom the vaccine doesn't work. Not every single vaccinated person doesn't become infectious. Some do. Some people get the vaccine, and if they're very old or if they're immune compromised, their immune system doesn't generate sufficient antibodies not to, to catch it or even to get sick. So even in an ideal scenario, if you have the kind of economy and the kind of lifestyle that Australia had gotten used to, which is an extremely open economy, an extremely open society where people travel all the time, where tourism is a massive industry, where international students are a massive industry, they come in, they go to our universities, they go back to Asia, we go to the States, we go to the UK, we go to Bali, it's constant coming and going. If you're going to have that, then even in an ideal future scenario, given that you've got variants constantly mutating, and imperfect vaccines, there's going to be a bit of coronavirus coming in. And this insistence up until now that we're not going to open the borders until it's safe, with the implication being safe means zero cases, has been absolutely infuriating to rational people like me who say, okay, and then what? And then what? Just give me some hope. Give me some sense of what happens next. What is the bridge towards which we're working? And the authorities say that not enough people are getting vaccinated. 
Well, why would you get vaccinated if you thought that the borders were going to be closed indefinitely? I mean, give us a carrot, not a stick. Don't tell us we're not going to be allowed into places because we're not vaccinated. Tell us if you ever want to go overseas again and have a holiday, you've got to get vaccinated. And that today is what they've done. So the Prime Minister has announced a four-step plan. Step four is so far away in the future that, that, you know, it's not really worth thinking about at the moment. That's basically sort of a return to normality. But uh, step one, and I quote I quote the Prime Minister directly, he says, uh, we've agreed to formulate a national plan to transition Australia's national COVID response from its current pre-vaccination settings, focusing on suppression of community transmission, to post-vaccination settings, focused on prevention of serious illness, hospitalisation and fatality, and the public health management of other infectious diseases. Hallelujah. I feel like I've been treated like a madman bashing his head against a brick wall for the past eight months on the air with people saying, you just don't care about people, you don't care about my grandparents' lives, you just want people to die. No. I want us to have a reasonable conversation about what the trade-offs are. How many dead coronavirus victims would be acceptable in Australia? The same number as people who die of the flu every year? Less? More? Why? Why do we care about one disease more than another? Well, because the hospitals could get overwhelmed. No, now you're changing the subject. Let's assume that we've got enough people vaccinated that the hospitals aren't going to get overwhelmed. Let's assume that our contact traces are good enough that they can quash outbreaks before they get out of control. Let's assume that our testing is good enough and widespread enough that we can identify where the outbreaks are happening and get on top of them. Then what is the rationale for treating coronavirus any differently from any other infectious disease? And people have given the, the most monumental quantity of obfuscatory bullshit in that conversation up until now, today, and thank God that this seems to be changing. Phase two, the first, so the first phase focuses on suppressing the virus and vaccinating the population and only relying on lockdowns as a last resort. Phase two, which the Prime Minister says he hopes Australia will enter next year, sounds like a long way away to me, but, you know, take what you can get. Phase two is that vaccinated Australians wouldn't have to go undergo the two weeks of quarantine when they come back to Australia. They could do seven, they'll be able to do seven days of home quarantine. That will be the game changer for so many people like me who have loved ones abroad. I can put up with with staying inside my house for seven days getting home. And the science now shows that a seven day home isolation for a vaccinated person is safer than a 14 day stay in hotel quarantine for an unvaccinated person in terms of the likelihood that an infection is going to escape into the community. Then phase three, uh, oh, so part, another part of phase two is that a, a certain number of international students are going to be allowed back into the country. Phase three would be a lifting of restrictions for vaccinated people to travel internationally and basically allow, so there's currently a, uh, a prohibition on leaving the country and you need to apply for an exemption, uh, which you can get if you jump through all the right hoops and have a good reason to go abroad. Uh, but uh, phase three would be an easing of that ex- that exemption requirement, and you'd be able to go to places that are identified in an expanded sort of travel bubble. At the moment, there's a travel bubble with New Zealand. It's been put on hold because of the current Australian outbreak, but in general, uh, there's free, free uh, freedom of movement between Australia and New Zealand. 
when there are no coronavirus outbreaks. So you'd extend that to countries like Singapore and other Pacific Island countries and, you know, who knows, potentially Japan and Taiwan, countries like that. Uh, so this is all good news and I'm feeling quite chipper and proud, not that I had a personal impact on it, uh, but that I was part of a community of media commentators who refused to uh, fearmonger and to and insisted on pushing back, not just against officials, but also against talkback callers and texters and tweeters who have been parading this kind of, this doomsday scenario as, as if anyone who questions the integrity of the Australian border closure is a, is a monster who wants gran- granny to die. Uh, so that's that. It does still infuriate me that the vaccine rollout is going so slowly in Australia. I think something like four to five percent of Australians have been vaccinated, compared to fifty to seventy percent of Brits and Americans. Now, it's somewhat understandable because we don't have coronavirus here, so it's less urgent. It's not a not a humanitarian public health crisis the way that it is in those countries. But I've gotten into many a Twitter argument over the past week with people defending the government's acquisition of vaccines. So I just want to tell this little story so that you are well informed about the contours of this saga. Norman Swan, who is a physician and a health reporter uh, and has become almost the sort of Anthony Fauci of Australia in terms of being a trusted and also maligned voice of health information and reason uh, in Australia. He's the chief health reporter for the ABC, the public broadcaster, which you can think of a bit like the BBC in terms of the prominence that it, the prominent role that it plays in Australian intellectual life. Uh, and he reported recently that he has three good sources who've told him that when Pfizer was selling its vaccine to the countries of the world, this is last July, uh, it was not yet tested. We didn't know which vaccines would be the, the good ones or the bad ones, but Pfizer basically felt that there were some good candidate countries to get a whole lot of vaccine and do a full-on vaccination uh in excess of the of what you might expect from their population, and, and that Pfizer felt that Australia was a good candidate as such a country because it had been so successful at eradicating the virus in the first place, so it could become a bit of a test case. This is the sort of approach that Pfizer took towards Israel, for example, where they Israel did a deal that, that secured it far more uh, vaccinations, uh, vaccine doses than any other country uh, per capita, any other comparable country. So the claim is that it, that Pfizer came to Australia, to the Australian government, offering a similar deal of 40 million doses. And at the meeting, there was an Australian junior official who nickel and dimed Pfizer, uh, argued about the cost, uh, uh, insisted that the Australian government would want intellectual property control over it so that Pfizer wouldn't be able to make money out of it and just generally behaved like a bit of an immature dick and that Pfizer went away and uh, that was the end of that. Now, what we know is that the Australian government came back to Pfizer in October, November and asked for as much vaccine as we could have and Pfizer said, no, you can't have 40 million doses, you can have 10 million doses. 
And that has subsequently caused enormous delays in Australia's vaccination rollout because Australia had doubled down on the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is associated with these blood, blood clots. Now, I don't know whether or not Dr Norman Swan's reporting is correct. I don't know who his three sources are. I trust his journalistic integrity. I don't think he's lying about those sources or that those sources would be non-credible. I also believe that it's plausible that there could be a little bit of a grey area in all of this, in the sense that you wouldn't expect a multinational drug company to come to a meeting with any sovereign government and just flop its dick on the table and say, here's the offer in writing 40 million, take it or leave it, and then the government says no. That's probably not how it happened. These sorts of things tend to be a little bit nuanced. There tends to be a dance. It's a kind of a flirtation, right? It's a courtship. Uh, So it's entirely possible that a lot of people are arguing that Norman Swan's incorrect and that Australia only ever stood to get 10 million doses anyway because Pfizer was committed to sending its vaccines to places that needed it the most. But what I don't quite get about that is that the US and the UK and Israel all secured their Pfizer deals in July of 2020. Canada secured its allocation on the 5th of August. Australia's was in November. So even if you don't believe the worst version of this conspiracy theory where the Australian government essentially told Pfizer to jump off a cliff and then came clambering back a few months later, you've got to ask yourself why in the middle of a global pandemic you wouldn't throw the kitchen sink at every vaccine and just pre-order as much as you can in July and August. Why are you waiting till November? So to me, it's sort of academic whether or not the, the whole Norman Swan story is true. What we know to be true is outrageous enough, which is that nobody in the Australian government was pounding the table in July and August saying, get me as much vaccine as we can acquire. Nobody had the forethought. Nobody had the imagination. Nobody had the the kind of the empathic vision to see into the future and go, okay, well, we're currently grappling with this pandemic in all of the manners that we're trying to grapple with a, a pandemic for which there's no vaccine, like using lockdowns and job keeper subsidies and, you know, just closing the border and hotel quarantine and all that. But clearly the next phase is going to be a vaccination phase. Nobody seemed to have that foresight. And people say, oh, well, you know, it would have cost a lot of money. What I mean, the government would have been criticised. But what if the Pfizer vaccine, we didn't know at the time it was going to be a good one. What if it had turned out to be a dud and they'd spent all this money on 40 million doses? Well, so what? You know how much vaccines cost? 40 million doses of Pfizer vaccine costs the same amount that the government was spending on JobKeeper, on the JobKeeper subsidy to prop up the economy in one week. One week. Don't you think it's worth the gamble to spend one week's worth of JobKeeper on ensuring that your country can control its own future, its own destiny as quickly as possible and get vaccinated? We could be out of this. Our border could be open already. We could be on this third phase. We could have all the restrictions for vaccinated people lifted on travelling internationally because we could be at 70% vaccines if we had 40 million Pfizer doses, if we'd signed on to that in July. 
And then some people come at me on Twitter for saying this, saying, well, that's, that's not very ethical of you. The doses should have gone to countries that really needed them to save lives. Australia didn't need them. We're doing fine. To which I say, well, okay, if we had them, we could give them away. I mean, I'm not saying that we had to use them. I'm just saying it's the job of a sovereign government to work on behalf of its people. To get the vaccines for its people. And then if the people go, actually, you know what? Instead of taking them, let's give them to Papua New Guinea and Belize, then that's fine. But it's the job of the government to make sure that that decision is made by us, not by a multinational corporation. Why are we handing that authority to Pfizer? Let us make the decision about whether or not we want to be greedy or we want to be generous. And then there's the other question of sort of moral hazard. Like people say, oh, well, why should Australia have got it? We didn't need it. Well, the only reason we didn't need it is because we handled the pandemic really well. Like, do you, do you punish the places that handle it well and that are responsible in their, their reaction to the pandemic? They then have to wait around rotting in their little hermit kingdom forever because they did the right thing and the places that were that lacked any kind of discipline about responding to the pandemic are the ones that get the vaccine first i mean maybe but that's a that's a kind of a shitty ethic anyway those are the two things looming large in my head this week my frustration that so few of us are vaccinated and my delight that at last the authorities have listened to me. Me, let's face it, it was basically just me. Obviously, Scott Morrison listens to this podcast and to my ABC show. We all know what a, what a lover of the ABC the current federal government is. So they've listened to me. They've taken my advice. They've heeded it. Uh, and there's been great wisdom all around, not just the federal government, but all the state and territory governments as well. So good on them uh, for being essentially my pawns. Uh, Jesse Single is on the show today. I mentioned that he is super villain and also super hero. If you don't know him, that says something about how not online you are, or at least not online in the way that people who are infuriated about cancel culture are online. Um, he has a fabulous podcast about cancel culture and public shaming and social media and the culture wars. Uh, it's co-hosted by the delightful Katie Herzog, who's been a guest on this very podcast. You can be sure to find that episode and inhale it through your ear holes. Their show is called Blocked and Reported, so subscribe to that too. Jesse's new book is called The Quick Fix, Why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills. Read it, listen to his podcast, and listen to and enjoy this conversation, which will hopefully allow you to make up your own mind about that cultural lightning rod that is the one, the only, Jesse Single. Since October, I was looking at the data yesterday, Australia's had three COVID deaths in the past seven months. That's insane. Yeah. It's nothing. Yeah. Which, and we've had less than 100 total, grand total, the whole, the whole thing. And, you know, Australia is small, but it's not tiny. It's like, you know, 25 no, million No, and it people. has some very big, densely packed cities. So yeah. It's incredibly impressive. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, to, what's your book? The Quick Fix, Why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills. Uh, in 2014, I started a job as the editor of Science of Us at New York Magazine. It was basically a, 
a website under the New York Magazine brand uh, dedicated to writing about uh, psychology, about human behavior. And I, I ended up sort of taking on the role of a debunker because I realized a lot of university press offices, among others, were sending us just really half-baked findings. Just this, you know, this, this, these five cool new tricks will make you more productive or whatever. And then when you read the actual research these press releases were based on, there was often very little there. So my book sort of hopscotches from subject to subject, from education to racism to some others, uh, to explain how, especially in the 21st century, a lot of these ideas that that psychologists have sold us don't really have much evidence behind them, and, and we have arguably wasted a lot of time and money on them. Why do you care? Um, I care because I don't know. I, I don't like pseudoscience. I don't like wasting money. I, I think the world is a very complicated place and that we dig ourselves into holes when we pretend it's simple. So many of these ideas, you take these like really complicated subjects and you sum them up in one catchy sentence that that applies to sort of the behavioral intervention in question. And that that rarely, if ever, works because the world is complicated. It's sort of multi-causal uh, outcomes are. So I don't know. I, I just I've always found this stuff fascinating. And there's um there's never quite enough debunkers. There's always too many sort of evangelists for these ideas and too many journalists ready to just sort of echo them uh, mm. without enough credulity. I mean, is it getting worse? Because I feel the clickiness of the web is is exacerbating this. Like there are a lot of like top fifteen bloody blahs that I see offered to me as links at the bottom of you know blog articles that I click on and. I'm like, hang on, there's an ancient like homeopathic remedy that is complete nonsense, which is listed as number nine. And then number 10 is something really obvious and true, like get enough sleep or something. Right. <laughs> you know, and there's like, I think we're, <clears throat> we're in a moment at the moment where I'm seeing more and more of my millennial friends dabble in things like astrology and psychics. And like, there's a whole, like a friend of, Mine has come out as a witch. He's a witch. Oh, um, what's that coming out like? Is it like a ceremony? <laughs> I, well, I wasn't invited to whatever that was. Uh, I was under the stairs at the time, but I don't know. What, <laughs> uh, no, like he was like, you know, he, I want you to take it seriously. It's a thing that I take seriously. <clears throat> it has an old set of traditions and, you know, it's a, I don't know, it's a, it's a faith, I suppose. But I feel like, the there's a we're cleaving into this kind of phony binary where on the one side there's cold hard rational science that only can tell us whatever like public health officials and generally mistrusted scientific elites are willing to approve of and then on the other side there's no holds barred witches warlocks occult 5g bill gates is up your ass anti-vax like this universe of like homeopathy might as well be true if it makes you feel good you might as well believe it we don't need to use the scientific method at all and there isn't a lot of dabbling in the space that i would rather play in which is like okay what is the most reasonable thing to believe i don't i don't necessarily need you know it doesn't i'm not going to rely entirely on deferring to the authority of scientific establishments i might sometimes think that a high dose of vitamin d is likely to be good for me because uh you know there's enough anecdotal evidence even if you can't take it to the bank scientifically but that doesn't mean that i'm going to jump off the the cliff with chiropractors and believe in like a conception of the body from the 1800s that includes humors and 
you know, whatever strange ideology the these more alternative uh, ways of thinking promote. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a general problem where, I mean, can, can, I don't want to make this too much of a left-right thing. The left and the right have different pseudoscience problems. And, you know, the right, it's, it's well covered. Things like evolution, things like hardcore COVID denialism. I don't mean questioning this or that lockdown, which I think we need to be able to do. But some of the, some of the worst conspiracy theories about the coronavirus do come from the right. I do think among liberals and on the left, there's this tendency to be like, those guys over there aren't scientific thinkers. We over here are. And and in my own reporting, I've seen that that's just like, that general rule is violated over and over and over. I think liberals are, I don't know if they're exactly equal or exactly as susceptible to misinformation, but but people violate the laws of scientific reasoning all the time when it makes them feel good or good or when it sort of tickles their political priors. So um, one of the things I hope the book does is, is sort of maybe depoliticize this issue of like unscientific thinking and pseudoscience. Cause I really do think both sides are victimized by it or, or all sides. Cause there's more than two sides. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we don't also talk enough about <clears throat> the political underpinnings of the worldview that we're trying to uphold with our pseudoscience. Like yeah. we don't give enough, give enough credit maybe to people's – we talk about the priors, right, and the ways that our minds are systematically mistaken <clears throat> by bullshit. Excuse me. Clearly I'm getting coronavirus here in, in lockdown. Yeah, uh, don't die during our <clears throat> I'll try our not interview. to. Actually, that would make me pretty famous if you died during the interview. So. Well, then you'd, then you'd have the challenge of trying to get your hands on the audio to release it. Oh, yeah. As, and you'd <laughs> want to hear it. You'd want to hear it happening pretty much as close to live as possible. <laughs> it's got dark sorry yeah that's all right uh but like so the i think let's let me just take two examples like lockdown anti being being anti-mask and anti-lockdown and anti-vax on the right say and being like anti-gmos on the left uh on the right there's a whole worldview of like we don't want governments to become overbearing and we don't want to live in states where our lives are micromanaged. There's like a libertarian strain of independence that is a whole worldview. So you're just going to have a higher bar to cross in being cool with the government telling you that you have to stay home than someone who's more collectivist or community minded is they're going to be like, all right, everybody stay home and then the virus will die out in two weeks and then we'll all go back out again. Whereas that's offensive to the whole worldview of somebody who doesn't want to be bossed around. And similarly, if you take something like genetically modified organisms where you can have whatever problems you want with big ag and like the capitalist nature of the way that seeds are uh, regarded as intellectual property or whatever, but on the purely scientific level of, excuse me, whether or not GMOs are bad for you uh they're they're not they're they're not they don't cause any health problems and yet on the left there is this almost quasi-religious belief that you have to avoid genetically modified organisms at all at all cost and you can poo-poo that and say well they're just being pseudoscientific but you can also see it as again in a mirror image to the kind of libertarian right-wing thing feeding into a worldview of Nature is supreme. The world is, yeah. the, the planet Earth is complicated and beautiful. And we should need a high bar for 
to, to tinker around like Frankenstein with the bounty that planet Earth has provided us with, and therefore we shouldn't hastily just run into run towards those kinds of technologies. And I don't know if you have any ideas about how to like situate those specific uh, uh, you know beliefs in bad science within a context of a worldview so that you can actually have the meta conversation about the worldview instead of picking the sort of leaves of bullshit off the tree that you're doing nothing to to address. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. And it reminds me of a Yale uh, researcher named Dan Kahan, who, who basically writes about how we get anchored to our beliefs in part because those in our social and political and religious networks are too. So there's a very high social cost to sort of defecting from a belief. Like if you suddenly decide the, if you're in a conservative community and you suddenly decide the coronavirus vaccine is good, you're going to, you know, face sort of social sanction for, for saying so out loud. I mean, you know, some of this stuff uh, reminds me a little bit of like John Haidt and moral foundations theory. And I, I think the important point is like for the, the perspective of public health, it might be that very different messaging should be used to target different groups. And I, I think that's a weak point of as someone who's on the left and all, all else being equal, I want left, left ideas to win. Usually, obviously it's more complicated than that, but I think there's often like a real lead footedness with regard to messaging. And we think we can just like tell people they're morally wrong or anti-scientific. I mean, mm. if I hear another liberal person say like, listen to the science as though, as though things are quite so simple, um, I, I just think some of the messaging we've embraced probably bounces right off the people we need to convince. Yeah, that's right. Well, the, those people, then the right-wing version of listen to the science is do your own research. Do the research. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, have you heard that? Like, YouTube, do, yeah. Do yeah. The, yeah, exactly. Do the research. Don't listen to the what the experts are trying to lead the sheeple to believe. Stop being a sheeple. Do your own research. Uh, <clears throat> that That's interesting that you mentioned John Haidt because – uh, I would love to have him on the podcast. He said that he, he he said a couple of months ago that he was too busy, but then I just heard him on Bridget Fettersy's podcast. So I'm going to hit him back up and go, hey, John, uh, you said you were too busy, buddy, to do podcasts right now. But <clears throat> John and I did a tour of Australia and New Zealand, uh, I guess, the year before the pandemic, uh, and I moderated his live events. And he's fascinating. But can you articulate what moral foundations theory is very roughly for the listener who hasn't come across him? Yeah, it's like a pop quiz for the stuff I was writing about six years ago. I mean, the basic idea is there are these different moral foundations. One of them is sort of um, purity, like if you care about things being polluted. One is sort of deference to authority. I'm mangling the actual names, but I'm, I'm getting the sense of them. One is um, care harm, whether or not people are harmed. And the basic, my sense is that I have not checked in on this research in a while. I think there's been some legitimate challenges to moral foundations theory. The, but the basic idea is that conservatives, for example, value deference to authority more than liberals do. Uh, liberals value uh, care and harm and, and not harming innocent people more than conservatives do. We, we all have care about them to a certain extent. Like there's, there's definitely some cases where liberals will defer to authority, but it's the differences in sort of the sizes of the five or six graphs that, that define political differences. Uh, and it's, it's a very interesting theory. His book, The Righteous Mind, in many ways set me down my current path of being interested in uh, a lot of social and political psychology. So yes, his main insight was, one of his insights was if you're trying to convince a conservative to do X or Y, you should uh, attach that argument to the moral foundations they care the most about. Yes, and that that much of what we regard as being policy conversations are actually proxies for bigger conversations because we're all we all just have our sort of personal 
world preferences about uh, about these these sorts of metrics that you were just alluding to, like openness yeah. or deference to authority or whatever. And what we're actually what we're actually drawn towards are these kind of big, deep, powerful uh, considerations and trying to uh, uh, trying to argue about specific policies without addressing those bigger worldviews is is pointless and that actually john thinks that the left does the left succumbs to this flaw more than the right does that the right is good quite good at at articulating big ideas that punch you in the gut like you know if you just think about trumpy populism the idea that the country is going to be overrun by foreign invading impoverished hordes and who are who are doing you out of a job and rigging the system and that the country has systematically been undermined by them and corrupt people in Washington, D.C. and on Wall Street who've sold out the middle class. Like that's a narrative that that is appealing to Bernie Sanders supporters and to Donald Trump supporters. It doesn't have a lot of details in it. It doesn't have a lot of flesh on its bones, but certainly grabs you. Whereas then coming back and saying, I've got a plan to like put together a 173-point proposal which is going to you know, radically reform the relationship between your state and uh, and working families and their relationship right. to child income tax credits. It's like your eyes glaze over, and that's and the latter is what the left tends to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think we attempt to come up with sort of emotion driven mantras, but they're often lacking. I mean, you know, I I I think American refugee policy is a moral disgrace. How few refugees we've taken, given how many refugees we've created through our Middle East policy. But when I see left wing messaging on this, it just sort of like you, you can almost imagine the clap emojis. Like, no human is illegal. Like, yeah. don't use the term <laughs> illegal immigrant. It's like. Well, no. I mean, the fact is, they are in the country illegally. We want to change that. We want to mm. normalize to uh, normalize their status. So. Um, with that, to a certain extent with abortion, with just like saying like, no, it's literally just like any other health procedure. It's like, no, that isn't most people's moral intuition, including a lot of liberals. I think there's this like left-wing sloganeering, like maybe, well, I guess this is what sloganeering does in general, but but my critique of my side sloganeering is it wishes away complexity and it wishes away people's like strongly felt moral intuitions. It's like, a lot of it seems like you're just trying to rile up people on your own side without without even attempting to persuade anyone who doesn't already feel the way you do. That's really interesting. And I was reading a piece recently by one of the organs of journalism that has become that has veered off into becoming increasingly I don't want to say left wing because it's not left wing, increasingly no. I would just say smug about its own assumptions. This could be um, like twenty different publications. Yeah, and I'm on, I'm not saying that to be polite. I literally don't remember. It was either the Atlantic, <laughs> uh, like one of the only publications that I find still has self awareness is, which is on broadly the kind of left is the is the New Yorker, which yeah. I've actually read some. In, so, I mean, the New Yorker is so good. If people don't read the New Yorker, then just Google around and just read some stuff from it. And also, while you're at it, buy the Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. And if you can't, if you don't have time to read the book, get the audio book, which he narrates. Which and is the Quick Fix good. by Jesse Single. And the Quick Fix by Jesse Single. That goes without <laughs> saying. That's the whole purpose of, course, of this interview. Of course. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> but you can't get it in Australia, so wait until we're out from under the stairs and then fly to China and buy a bootleg <laughs> buy a bootleg copy. That, uh, but then you won't get a uh, you won't get any money from a from a cop from a bootlegged copy, Jesse. So maybe yeah. they could just send you some ca- some Australian cash in the mail. 
There you go. I've heard it's basically it's basically worthless. That's right. That's I'm, right. I'm, I'm going to fly there and I'm going to drop it into the pouches of twenty five thousand kangaroos, <laughs> copies of the book. <laughs> I want you guys just reaching. It'll be like sort of a golden ticket type mm-hmm. of thing. Right. Okay. It, you know, it's not that easy to to grab a kangaroo as they bounce past us on the street. <laughs> that is, by the way, that is literally the most yeah. sophisticated satire of Australia I'm capable of. <laughs> They're quite wily kangaroos. Yeah, uh, yeah. But so in this article that I was <clears throat> that I was reading, I think it might have been in the Atlantic. <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, they were talking about the crisis on the border, the renewed crisis on the border, because I think Kamala Harris has just been down to the border after she was getting a lot of heat from the right for not having visited the border. And this was the personal story of uh, people who were on the Mexican side of the border. They were Hondurans and they were paying the coyotes. And it was about how the coyotes are all managed by this huge drug cartel and the tragedy of these people who try to cross over the border. They get caught by border, by US border security and they get deposited on the other side of the border and they try again the next day and they try again and try again and try again. And I am absolutely not a defender of Australia's position on what we do with maritime arrivals, which as you may know, basically just like throw them on an Island. I mean, yeah, it's It's the harshest response probably of any rich Western democracy to unauthorized arrivals. Uh, and it's a stain, I think, on the country's soul that, that yes, the, if you arrive illegally in Australia by boat, then you will never be resettled in Australia. That is the policy ever. Yeah. And while you're being processed, you won't, in order to avoid Australia's, sort of, in order to sort of get around Australia's commitments under international refugee law, that means that you have to never reach Australia. So you have to be intercepted by the Navy and then placed on a third country with which Australia, which Australia basically bribes, um, most notably Papua New Guinea or Nauru. Uh, and, you know, you're then incarcerated in perpetuity in sort of open-air refugee camps uh, and eventually, hopefully, someone will be able to take you and you can be resettled to a third country. Like they were tried to be resettled in Malaysia, but then the Australian High Court uh, struck that down because it, you know we couldn't guarantee that they would be safe in Malaysia. Some of them were sent back to were sent to the US, and there was a Obama did a deal with Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, and this infuriated Trump when Trump got into office, and he uh, was absolutely outraged by it. But he ultimately stood by it because his advisors yeah. told him not to piss off Australia. Um, and and that that was a deal where we would take an equivalent number of Central American refugees from America if America took our refugees from Nauru or PNG. So that's like there's this whole subtext there. But having said all of that, there are, we're only talking about hundreds of people, uh, at yeah. most thousands of people, in comparison to the hundred thousand plus people who Australia take in which Australia who Australia takes in every year, Australia's commitment to being having one of the highest rates of refugee resettlement of any country in the world in terms of the the, ref, the number of refugees that Australia takes per capita from refugee camps around the world. And that's the kind of moral trade-off. When I read stories from the States about people at the border just crossing over and then the US just not doing anything with them, not incarcerating them not sending, not flying them all the way back to Central America, not sticking them on 
I don't know, Santa Catalina Island in a prison camp yeah. or something, but just putting them across the border, knowing that they're going to come back. And then I see that the left thinks that that is inhumane, that really what should be happening is they should be welcomed with open arms. Then I think, well, hang on, what kind of immigration policy do you want? I mean, I would want, if I was American and when I was living there, I would want America to have a really aggressively open-minded and open-hearted policy, which would mean taking lots of people from Burma and taking lots of people from the continent of Africa and taking lots of people from all over the world, not having those places, those immigration places essentially displaced by people who just managed to wander across the border by paying coyotes and then try it again and again and again in the context of a border policy that does nothing to deter them. That doesn't strike me as humane. Yeah, well, it's complicated because there is a subset of people who do sort of get caught in in these detention centers for extended lengths of time, and of course, there's the the family separation policy, which I know didn't start under Trump, but but I believe was accelerated under him. Um, it's it's all legitimately complicated, and and there's in some cases the people coming across via coyotes, like they came from El Salvador, which is a country that's like incredibly dangerous, and they they just can't go back. So I'm I'm not um. I think there's probably some utopian world in which we don't have borders. I'm not an open borders guy because I just don't think that's realistic. But uh, yeah, I, I, my, my main my main beef to the extent I follow these policy disputes is under Trump uh, are, are the number of refugees we took in really shrunk to horrifically low levels. And my understanding is Biden has not yet really started to tick that up. And I think for an aging country with like – we there are a lot of jobs that apparently native-born citizens don't want to do. I, I think we could take a lot more immigrants overall. But don't you think that you would be taking a lot more refugees and you would be avoiding anti-immigrant populists like Donald Trump if the pub if the public had a sense that there was order? This is the trade. This like this is the Faustian trade-off that successive Australian governments have right. uh, have kind of you know not articulated but have have held to be true that that. Um, the first immigration minister of Australia, Arthur Caldwell, Caldwell, right after the Second World War, who oversaw the initial boom in Australian immigration, which was a massive immigration influx in the 50s, said, as long as Australians feel that they have control over who's coming in, they'll permit us to bring in huge numbers of people. And the moment they feel like they've lo- like we've lost control, then there'll be a there'll be a backlash. And the only way to sustain a large, multi ethnic, multicultural, thriving country with very high levels of immigration indefinitely is going to be to have control over who's coming in. And I I wonder if that would have been true in the states. Yeah, I mean it's obviously a different political culture. It's not an island. I guess my uh, again we're wandering beyond my areas of, of any expertise. I do think there's often not a very tight correlation between what. Americans think is going on with regard to immigration, what actually is like, I know there've been moments of sort of peak anti-immigrant sentiment that have occurred when, when the uh, crossings from on the South Southern border sort of had slowed to a trickle. They're back up. My understanding is they're back up now, but um, I think it's complicated. And there is, of course, there is right wing media where like if a million people come here and one of them commits a violent crime, that will be the story. And there's like um, half the country that I think is, you know, I think anti-immigrant sentiment is a bit, pretty big problem. So I don't know. I I sometimes say it's complicated to wriggle out of things, but it, <laughs> it is. This is pretty complicated. All right, I'll let you wriggle out of it. Uh, Thank let's, you. Let's revisit some of those uh, those left wing slogans that that do more to obscure than they do to 
highlight uh, things that you were saying. One of them you mentioned was like, oh, abortion is just healthcare, uh, when obviously that it doesn't land that way in the moral worldview of many people, uh, which doesn't mean it should be outlawed, but does mean that you need to at least tip your hat to the, com- the moral complexity that people yeah. feel about it. What was the other one you mentioned? We can sort of go through a list. Yeah, it's like no, no human is illegal to say you should Oh, yeah, okay, we've just done that. And you've, you've, squirmed, yeah. you've squirmed your way out of that successfully, so we can park that one. Um, the, other, the other obvious slogan which touches on you is trans women are women, which I see a lot, um, meaning it's almost become a kind of religious catechism that uh, you need to you need to state that trans women are women in order to be regarded as not being transphobic, and yet some people want to say that trans women are trans women, and they're still women, but this is like kicking the most massive hornet's nest in the history of the universe. And it may, it, yeah. I mean, I'm just raising it. You can sort of dodge this if you want because your whole life is hounded by this issue. <clears throat> Although I think it'd be interesting for you to articulate to people who aren't familiar with you yet why that's been the case. But I, yeah. I just walk around like I, yesterday when I knew that I was interviewing you, I was just had this. I was drinking heavily. I was dr- <laughs> exactly. If I, if I still drank, which I no longer do. Uh, and boy, life, I tell you what, life is easier when you don't drink, especially during lockdown, during the pandemic, it was like, uh, Oh my God. I don't know I about, so I don't know about you, know but I drank, so, I drank so much during the pan, during the lockdown originally. And I was like, this, I don't think this is helping anything <laughs> i don't think yeah. this is improving my mood so it's been much better since i stopped but uh I, I walked around with this kind of leaden weight in my gut because i have and my partner has so many friends who are so important to us who are trans or non-binary and i so want to be like a good ally and I so don't want this to become a culture war issue. And I'm so outraged by laws that try to deprive yeah. trans men and women of their rights. Or, And yet it's so sad to me that I feel like a portion of this is just an own goal, is, is being created by a certain hysteria <clears throat> and, and doctrinaire insistence on alienating every possible ally from this, uh, I mean, an insistence that comes from a certain faction of the, I don't want to call it radical trans wing, because some of them, many of these people are not trans, but there's an insistence among the virtue signaling kind of peacocks of the left that everybody take the most maximally uh, extreme view on this issue and that if you try to have a rational conversation about biology and culture then you're you're persona non grata and all of a sudden nobody can talk about it which means that everybody feels alienated from it which means that trans people are are the ones who end up suffering yeah i mean i think it's an incredibly complicated and fraught issue and i think what what um sort of normies or people who don't follow it closely might not realize is like there are some people making fairly radical claims that would change the way we think about sex and gender. And and in some cases that's good. Like I think it's an important uh, moral innovation that we recognize some people, you know, they're just going to live much happier, better lives if, if they're allowed to 
present and be treated as the other sex or the other gender. It's very easy to mix up the language here. Um, you know, there, there's a very, very strong case to, to treat people in a manner that lines up with their gender identity and to give them access to hormones or, or surgery if they want it. I, I think these are straightforward moral cases, often in the same neighborhood as like gay marriage, where it's, it's pretty hard to come up with arguments against them if you're familiar with the issue. But there's also the, the sort of more radical take, which I, I don't think is actually held by that many trans people. Like trans people, of course, have very nuanced views on their own sense of identity. But this is the view, as you said, that trans women just are women. Trans men just are men. There's, there's not really a distinction. And, and your sex and your gender is determined by what you say you are. And I think, uh, you know, 95, I forget, I usually say 99%, maybe it's 95%, 90% of the time. That's fine. We can treat people the way they say they want to be treated with regard to sex and gender. There's very clearly a set of, of, outlying but important cases, in, including things like sports or what we should do to best help gender dysphoric children versus adults, where I think we really need to talk about this with some level of rigor and compassion and care, but it's it's being taken over by those mantras. And I also don't want to, I don't want to imply that every country is dealing with this the same way. Like my sense from my Australian friends in queer spaces and from a friend of mine who has a trans child uh, is that there is a there is still a fair amount of medical scrutiny on this in Australia and that you know this is not done willy-nilly like especially the prescription of hormones for for children is is not done in an unquestioning manner but yeah. One would have to assume that we would be going down the the, the same path that the UK and many American states have taken, which is that any attempt to uh, interrogate why a young person might have gender dysphoria or might be feeling that their gender identity uh, is fluid, any attempt to interrogate that by a psychologist is equivalent to uh, like some kind of brutalizing anti-LGBT therapy that's trying to pervert the course of their natural gender evolution. Like it should be possible for a psychologist to uh, to chat with a 15-year-old about why they're trans in order to establish that they actually are and that there's not some kind of social or cultural contagion going on. But I I mean, even, even saying that, I wonder if I'm just being the same as people in the 1970s who were saying, like, why don't we talk to 15-year-olds about being gay? And when in right. actual fact that was, you know, a horrible, a horrible thing to do to them, to be like prying around in their private lives, why do they have to justify to a psychologist why they're gay? Yeah, and, well, and, and that's on its face a very winning argument. Why, why would you ask these questions? It's the same as questioning whether people are really gay. My answer is just that, A, I'm only concerned about this stuff uh, insofar as it involves uh, serious medical treatments. And puberty blockers are often presented as like 100% reversible. We don't, we don't know that's true. And, and to the point where the National Health Service changed its website from these are reversible to basically we're not sure. They're pretty reversible. I, I don't think if a kid went on puberty blockers for a year and went off them, you would not expect like major issues, but, but they're serious. And hormones even more so, especially for younger and younger kids. Um, I just think it's a world of moral difference away from, I mean, a 14 year old says he's gay. Okay. Be gay. I mean, what, 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 what's the downside? Practice safe sex, be careful, learn about consent. It's just very different from a 14 year old who wants medical treatment. And I don't think anything I've written has been about 
you know, 14 year olds who come out as non-binary or, or trans or whatever, who don't want medical treatment. But I, in my view, there's both some evidence that for some kids, um, they could use some time working this stuff out with a skilled, compassionate therapist, not one who's going to coerce them into being something they're not, but one who can unpack what's going on. And I think a lot of the time when you're done unpacking what's left is this is a kid with gender dysphoria and, and maybe they'll flourish if they're given access to these treatments. But this idea that you can't even do those unpacking, do that unpacking without it being invalidated, I think is really dangerous. And unfortunately, I think there's like a, in the States, a growing cohort of very incompetent youth gender clinicians who just have don't understand the science of this and are probably delivering bad care to transgender and gender nonconforming kids. So I don't know how big a problem this is. I do know that when you listen to the stories of detransitioners, they're they're pretty disturbing. And a lot of them seem like they would have been very avoidable. So explain detransitioners to people who aren't caught up in this and to people who don't know you, maybe just articulate, I mean, don't want to rehash it a bazillion times, but you wrote a very good piece, which I recommend that people read, which was in the Atlantic. Is that right? Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. was in the Atlantic. Um, we're coming up on the three-year anniversary. Oh, no, we're and, past it already. Damn. Hey, there you go. Uh, and it was basically just looking at the the uh, the case of a few detransitioners. So what's a, what's a detransitioner and how did this come to your attention and what was the response? Yeah, so the, the, the piece basically just is the question of what the diagnostic procedure should look like before younger kids go on puberty blockers or hormones. It basically takes the view that for adults – we should let them do what they want. You could come up with some, you know, I, I think if a 22 year old is having very severe other mental health issues, they should think long and hard about this. At the end of the day, you got to let, I think you got to let adults make their own medical decisions here. Um, so the piece explained sort of the history of how trans people have lacked access to healthcare and talked about how uh, starting in 2007, puberty blockers arrived in the States and, this is a protocol where kids who are gender dysphoric can first go on puberty blockers to prevent the development of secondary sex characteristics, uh, you know, which are permanent and, and require uh, surgical interventions to remove. So, so in other words, if you're um, born male, but you identify as a girl and you go through puberty and you get an Adam's apple and facial hair, that's a pretty big deal if you have gender dysphoria. That could, could reduce the probability you'll ever truly pass as a woman or at least without a lot of medical care. So the theory is puberty blockers um, prevent that from happening. And then you can go on estrogen, cross-sex hormones, and, and develop some of the features of, of a woman and become, um, you know, for lack of a better term, more convincing. Um, the problem is... And this is where some some activists would would vehemently disagree with me. If you look into the research, there's strong evidence to believe that a lot of kids who are gender dysphoric at, say, age six will not be gender dysphoric at age nine. Gender dysphoria often is a sign a kid will end up being gay, not transgender. In other cases, the gender dysphoria will stick around and, and they'll need treatment. So a lot of this debate comes down to some clinicians will say we can't really predict who will desist. That's the term. They're desisters that the gender dysphoria desisted. Other clinicians are very confident that they can predict, you know, which kids will be trans in the long run. Um, but to me, that's what makes this a difficult issue of bioethics is what, where's the right balance? How do you make sure you're giving these, these powerful irreversible treatments to the kids who will benefit from them the most and not handing them out willy-nilly to kids who might have other mental health problems going on. And can I just clarify, I, I mean, I think, am I mistaken in in believing that there is a a class of trans people who have exhibited trans certainty from basically day one? Like, I mean, this is the child of a friend of mine who 
as from the, from even the earliest days as a toddler has always identified as their sex you know which is different from the sex that they were assigned at birth and that in those cases there's very very low detransitioning if any at all right i mean when you're talking about people who when they were 2 years old 3 years old 4 years old 5 years old were insisting that they were they were in the wrong body and they're not gender non-binary, they're gender binary people. In other words, they firmly believe that they are of a fixed sex. It's just the different from the sex that they were born as. Then I don't think we're talking about those people at all. I mean, I think it's a slam dunk for me that those those people should be treated uh, entirely as the sex that they feel that they are. And I, I think where the conversation becomes more interesting or grayer is where you've got, you know, cohorts of of especially girls where they where you've seen the data go through the roof in in terms of identification as trans when they're they're preteens they're tweens they're in their adolescence and there are whole social cohorts of girls where you have extremely high numbers and a lot of these people as you say have other mental things going on at the time uh, a disproportionately high number of them are on the spectrum on the autism spectrum, and there's a certain cachet in being trans, and there certainly does seem to be some level of cultural or social contagion within peer groups where uh, a higher than number, a higher than expected number of, say, thirteen-year-olds in a in a social cohort at school will all go, all become trans at the same time. So then the question becomes: Do you uh, do you transition all of them with medical treatment without asking any questions, or do you try to assess what's going on and the yeah the mere asking of that question has basically plunged you and anyone who asks it into an interminable nightmare of being pilloried online and on social media not just pilloried but legitimately accused of being uh of having the blood of trans people on your hands of being a pervert who is fantasizing <laughs> yeah. constantly about uh you know raping trans women i mean the kinds of things that get said about you for asking that question is horrendous i mean is is salem like witch hunt level stuff and i don't understand what's going on yeah i mean it's it it's not fun i i should say i you know i'm i'm lucky to have a Things have been working out for me in journalism lately. I'm very fortunate that might not last. So I don't want to pretend I've been like capital C canceled. But yeah, people have said some very messed up stuff. Um, I don't want to misrepresent the research. There's definitely a class of cancel. Well, hang on. Let me, let, let me, I just don't yeah. want to let canceled go by the wayside because I yeah. think we get caught up in cancel culture and like who's been canceled and everyone's like, well, hang on. How can you say that so-and-so has been canceled? They're doing well. You're doing well because you, you're a writer and a podcaster an independent writer and podcaster who people pay independently by subscribing to your Substack and to your podcast for your content. But I think it would also be fair to say that any mainstream publication that seeks to commission you to write something for them that's completely unrelated to the culture wars or unrelated to this issue is going to have a meeting before they do so about do we really want to kick this hornet's nest and get the backlash online from Mm -hmm. having hired Jesse Single? Maybe. I mean, so th- that's my, my long-term worry is like the, the dumbest, most reactionary 25-year-olds uh, in journalism will come to to have these gatekeeping roles. As of now, that hasn't yet happened. I'm sure there's some outlets like I couldn't write for anymore. They're mostly outlets that don't really pay well and that are struggling. Um, 
so far this hasn't been the case. Like I'm still a contributing writer at New York magazine. I can pitch there. Uh, when my book came out, I, I, you know, I was lucky. I had a piece in the New York times. I had a piece in the wall street journal. Um, I haven't really, it's, it's a weird time because it's actually like better for me business-wise to write stuff for my own newsletter. Uh, anyway, in terms of like what I would get per word, but my set, I don't want to overstate the extent to which I can't write for mainstream publications. There's obviously a subset of people within progressive journalism, who have said that I sh- I shouldn't be allowed to uh, have a career in journalism anymore? I I think that's ridiculous. But um, I don't know. I'm I, I'm hovering somewhere between. Uh, yeah, it's it's okay. So okay, I just good. don't want. So it's only it's only psychological wanna... torture and uh, and the smearing <laughs> of your name. It's not actually financial. No, and, and you know you can include a link to Jonathan Kay's piece. The smearing has been very bad. I don't want to discount that or, or, or underestimate that. But, What's um, Jonathan Kay's piece? Did he write about your? Jonathan is one he, of the editors of Quillette, is he? Or Yeah, he wrote a piece basically about how there's been um, the 2018 Atlantic piece wasn't the first time I wrote about this. Ever since the first time I wrote about this, there's been this like weird online thing where so-called sock puppet accounts will pop up and try to contrive some sort of like uh, scandal about me. So, so sometimes it is um, uh, – that I've sent people dick pics and I laugh because I, I, I am fully aware of how little anyone, including my girlfriend wants a photo of my penis. <laughs> I th- when you said uh, you're, you're fully aware of how little and then you pause, <laughs> yeah. I was like, Oh, come how, on. Yeah, tell exactly. me how little your penis is. Jesse. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, okay. So, and a sock puppet account is a phony account that someone has. Yeah. Put Cause yeah, they're so, hands up the back of a sock puppet and it's just pretending to be something they're not. Basically. Right. Yeah, yeah. And and this extended to the point where a, a, a prominent writer at Slate publicly said, uh, so many of my trans friends, Jesse is, sorry, I can only laugh at this, have, has he's tried to invite them out to lunch in this creepy way, which is just not something that's ever happened. And if it had happened, there would, of course, be screenshots of it. So this is all in the K piece. Maybe you can link to it. Um, That stuff has gotten very frustrating. It is a form of like, you know, attacking someone psychologically, trying to ruin them, their name. I, I think um, uh, it's now been years later and no one, you know, there, there's no there there. It's just frustrating seeing people circulate these rumors. But um, so, so, but back to the, the sort of science of this, like uh, traditionally the kids who showed up at gender clinics were very gender dysphoric from a young age. You have two-year-olds saying things like, why did God give me a penis? I want to go back in mommy's belly and come out a boy stuff like really intense stuff where it suggests a, a very deep seated, likely biological seed of this. We don't have great evidence to suggest that none of those kids desist. I think sometimes they do. And, and a clinician once told me like, even those kids, you're not sure, but yeah, those are the kids where like, it's, it's less likely. And if you have a kid who first expresses this view at two and still feels that way at the onset of puberty, to me, that's like a slam dunk case of like, yeah, put them on puberty blockers because they're. I think they're probably going to feel that way forever. As you alluded to, there's there's this newer cohort of kids who are 12, 13, 14, 15. It's called, it's all sometimes referred to as rapid onset genders for it because seemingly overnight, they will tell their parents they're trans. I don't really like using that term because like in some cases, maybe they have felt that way for a while and haven't told their parents but there's definitely some cases where there appears to be peer influence going on. And like you said, to even suggest that this element of someone's identity could be influenced by peers is seen as like tantamount to basically murder. But I, I mean, my, my response to that is like, can you name any area of adolescent life that is not influenced by culture and peers? I, adolescents are like sponges when it comes to that stuff. Yeah, that's a 
good point. And yet I still feel uneasy because I want to be on the right side of this. So I don't want to say, like, couldn't the cultural, con- I, I have two thoughts. Couldn't your cultural contagion argument also apply to homosexuality and bisexuality? And in fact, as I say that, I actually think it does. And I don't think that that undermines, <laughs> yeah, I don't think that that undermines uh, gayness at all. I mean, I, as- but, that, but that's that's the reason why the analogy fails because there's there's obviously a subset of kids who go to g- girls who go to Smith and the you know lesbians until graduation, which I think in 2021 we can admit that that's not as offensive as it used to be. I guess as a straight man, I shouldn't say that, but like don't in the gay community, don't you? Re- isn't it known that some people dabble for a little while, partly because of like the, their social milieu? Isn't that part of it? Well, yeah. I mean, I look, I differ a bit here because I've never bought. I'm I'm probably the wrong person to ask because I had, uh, you know, fulfilling relationships with girls throughout my youth, and I came out late. I didn't come out until I fell in love with another guy. But I like I yeah. had dated a girl in a very authentic and and loving way in my early twenties, and uh, and so I sort of never bought into the born this way thing i kind it's of an oversimplification yeah i sort of felt a like use, a politically useful one but an that's that's it may be politically useful but i also yeah i just think when you look at the behavior of men with each other in prisons and private schools and historically in ancient greece and like what guys how the the prevalence of bisexuality in in cultures like paris in the 19th century and i don't know there just this this seems to be a lot of evidence that there is a lot of flexibility on the dial there and you know whether that's uh football jocks who are all beating each other off over a you know some girl who they're all coked up having a gangbang with you know they will insist that that's not homoerotic uh that the focus is the girl but there are lots of lots of blurry edges here about what it is exactly that's getting us that's getting us off and i don't think that you deprive gay people of their rights by acknowledging that there that there's a blurriness at the edge so i guess yeah i guess i've just talked myself out of the question about about well well, but 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 there's a couple important things to unpack here one is i think we feel more comfortable saying that today because at least in the countries we live in gay rights have been secured at the most basic level that doesn't mean there aren't parts of either country where it's still dangerous to be gay or or you wouldn't face trouble you know, a guy holding hands with his boyfriend, but but we can take maybe a more nuanced, realistic view of things because it doesn't feel like the community is besieged the way it did, you know, uh, 2004 in the States, they're, they're debating constitutional amendments banning gay marriage, which is insane to think about 17 years later. I think there could be something similar going on with the trans issues where like five years from now when maybe there's a little bit less of a sense of the community being under siege, we can hopefully talk about it in a more realistic way. Uh, because at the end of the day, I mean, you can people can make these comparisons to like anti-gay talk if they want. But if it were the case that the process was a 15-year-old comes out as gay and they demand a permanent medical treatment because they're gay or they want one, in those cases, you would you would want to question their identity to make sure it's a stable identity because you don't want people to go on a permanent medication that they'll later regret. So I just – yeah, I, yeah. Just, I, I mean, I, and yeah. I, I would just expand that from saying that it, it's not just about the the reticent reticence about prescribing life altering treatments to young people. I think part of when you say that in a few years the heat will have gone out of this issue and we'll be able to have a more rational conversation about it. I certainly hope that's true for the benefit of all my trans friends. But I also fear that the backlash that we're seeing 
which trans people would say is not a backlash, but it's just uh, heteronormativity and yeah. you know white straight privilege reasserting the same dominance that it's that it's had for millennia. But I, I see the anti-trans bills in U.S. states and part of this kind of anti-trans rhetoric as being a backlash. Not just it's part, it's certainly partly a bigoted backlash from heteronormative power structures, uh, but it's also partly a rejection of an extreme ideological view of gender that people are uneasy with being taught to their kids and with becoming the new cultural norm. So it's yeah. a bit like if gay liberation and the gay rights movement had insisted on saying, instead of saying, we're here, we're queer, we want to be treated the same way that you are treated, we want to be able to get married, we want to not get fired from our jobs, we want to be able to rent apartments without being discriminated against with our significant others. It had also said, we want, we insist that you agree with us that nobody is straight, that everybody is gay, right. is a little bit gay, you know, and that you, in fact, that there is no norm about uh, opposite sex attraction, that that's all just a cultural artifact. That's That, I think, is the uh, is the level of sort of ideological overplaying of the hand that some conservatives feel is being undertaken by the more extreme elements of the gender conversation here. And unfortunately, it's regular trans people who are getting caught up in the in the crossfire because, as you said earlier, I don't know any trans people who think this way. It's all, mo most of the people who seem to be pushing this are LGBTQI plus allies or gay people who are speaking on behalf, or just straight millennials, who yeah. are speaking on behalf of trans people and insisting on a vision of gender that people find uh, detached and unhinged from biological reality and therefore worth pushing back against. And that's the kind of tragic, tragic Chinese finger trap that we're caught in. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something to that. And in the States, at least, a lot of the big rights groups, unfortunately, have gone a little bit off the rails uh, on this stuff. So it's not, you can't say it's like just randos on Twitter. It's like some fairly powerful organizations, in my view, make arguments that aren't in line with the evidence when it comes to things like, um, you know, youth transition or, or some of the sports stuff and, and things like that. So I, I think things will revert back to a little bit more sanity. But I, I do think you're right that you can't, some of the backlash is in response to like some sort of weird and wacky ideas that aren't going to resonate with most people. Whereas if you like, you know, in North Carolina, the Republican party suffered a major setback by, because they extended too far and they tried to basically ban trans people from using bathrooms that line up with their gender identity. I think the average person understands that's unfair. And the average person understands, you know, the sort of trans one one um, basically born in the wrong body, more or less. It's an oversimplification, but that resonates with cis people. Uh, some people just can't really, uh, if you tell these stories in the right way, I think most people get it. I think what most people don't get is like, there's no such thing as male or female. There's no such thing as a male body or a female body. These really wacky sort of more academic ideas, they should not be sort of the most visible part of the movement because people don't like them and they're not, uh, you don't need them to secure people their rights. It also depends what the rights are. Like we're coming up to the Olympics now and the first transgender athlete to compete at the Olympics is going to be there. And there's been a lot of hubbub online about this because this is in weightlifting. And so there is a question about 
you know what is the what is the physiological advantage of growing up with testosterone and having male bone density and mus- musculature in comparison to whatever whatever women were born women who are not yeah. going to be able to compete at the Olympics is there a there in this in all of this or is this like a a sideline distraction that conservative trolls are using to to try to you oh, know, I mean, play it, at the edges. I mean, I'm sorry, but everyone knows there's a there there. It, it depends on the level of competition. So you're you're referring to Laurel Hubbard. She'll be competing for New Zealand. I feel a little bit bad for her because I think she's been put in an impossible situation. She followed all the rules, and the International Olympic Committee said she's eligible. Um, I, I don't know anything about weightlifting. It does seem that uh, most female weightlifters are not 43. She's significantly older. She. It could be argued she took the spot of this 21-year-old um, who who would have been able to go to the Olympics. It strikes me that there's probably some fairness issues there. I, I think the more obvious fairness issues are some states in the U.S., there's basically no physical requirements when it comes to the high school level. This varies hugely by state, but in Connecticut, um, some, some trans girl runners have racked up a lot of records. And... I I don't think that's fair. At least I think it needs to be a conversation. But you look at the way this issue is covered in most progressive outlets, and it's like you're a, a, a crazy bigoted maniac for suggesting there's any difference between biological males and females with regard to sports. So I no, I I, I think it's an issue. I also think it's going to be sort of um. That's one aspect of this controversy that I think is going to burn itself out, just because I, I I don't know. I, I I feel I don't want in. I think some individual trans people are unfortunately going to be the subject of a lot of unfair scrutiny because in all these cases, they're following the rules. But I just think the the fairness issue is pretty evident for people who believe in women's sports. Uh, the idea that this isn't complicated and that it's just bigots, that, that's what sort of drives me crazy because that that's the the main liberal talking point right now. And it's just, it's obviously not true. And I think everyone knows it's not true and it doesn't help to continue echoing something everyone knows is not true. Yeah. I saw Sarah Silverman wagging her finger on her podcast at Caitlyn Jenner (laughs) for being transphobic for saying, and Silverman's point was, look, there are lots of differences between within genders as well, sorry, within sexes as well. Like you don't have to, yeah. So, you know, maybe, having been assigned male at birth is an advantage for a now trans female weightlifter. But, you know, Ian Thorpe had lots of advantages as a swimmer as as well. He, had, he was tall and had gigantic feet. Like, are we going to start micromanaging the advantages that people have if a trans person has an advantage by having had a different biology and musculature? I mean, that's what it means to be an elite athlete in the first place is that you're a freak. You're not, you know, any, any every cis Every every brilliant cis athlete is also biologically irregular in some way. Yeah, but it's just, that's not a serious argument because we've decided for understandable historical reasons that we don't want to exclude half the species from competitive sports. And the dividing line we chose was biological sex because that is the – if you had to pick one thing – to, to be able to tell about someone, just a zoomed out characteristic about whether or not they will be able to compete at the very highest levels of sport, it's always sex. I mean, it, it's, you know, there's these websites that'll list the the top runner of each sex at different distances. And oftentimes it's it's really to the point where it's like, you know, I, I, I make up these numbers. This is the approximate order we're talking about. The top 10 or 20,000 runner, male runners um, 
are all faster than the top one female runner. It's like that stark. So when Silverman and people like that make that argument, it's it's not a real it, it's like yes it's true at some level sports aren't fair i wish i was more athletic i wish i was better at basketball but i i am visibly bigger and stronger by dint of testosterone and my body type than the vast majority of women um it's just i don't know i feel like they're trying to muddy up something where everyone knows why we have women's sports and they're they're trying to confuse that and that's a weird thing for liberals to do because i thought they liked women's sports yeah, it. I mean, it. It also does. It misunderstands like the distribution of extremes. Like that, you yeah. can have two. If you think of two bell curves, and you've got a bell curve of athletic excellence, excellence for men and for for women, biological men and biological women, and you overlay them, then they're going to be slightly offset. But that doesn't mean that some of the men don't fall into the female category. Like you and I are probably. Uh, inferior basketball players to the best female basketball players in of the world. Uh, you know, we're not better just because we're men. Uh, but but the the extremes of the male, uh, the tail end of the top male athletes are going to exceed the tail end of the top female athletes, even though there's a bit of overlap. Um, and by a huge amount. It's like, so I, I'm in New York, which has, what, 8 million people. There's X female basketball players who could beat me, probably not a small number, but the five best females would be beaten by tens of thousands of men that that's the way distributions work if yeah. you look at i'm just repeating what you said it's just, and you it's would be crazy. beaten you would be beaten by every single other every male, male. In and i have played every male in one-on-one they've all beaten me all four million <laughs> no but i i mean it's just it's crazy i just saw this argument last um raised by by nathan robinson of current affairs who is a very smart guy very smart leftist thinker and it's crazy that anyone thinks this is an argument. He used the distribution argument uh, for his view, which is that there's not really a difference between males and females, which basically the argument he made with regard to sports. It's just, it's crazy. It does not take a lot of knowledge to understand that these are nonsensical arguments. Uh, the wonderful Oliver Berkman, who's who was the second guest on this, uh, this podcast, uh, who I love. Do you know Oliver? He writes for The Guardian. Yeah. And lives in Absolutely. Brooklyn. Yep. Uh, yep. He tweeted a- about this. I'm genuinely a bit surprised by the number of people arguing, not this is right, celebrate it, but rather this needn't be a big deal. It suggests a clear underlying position that a moral wrong has in fact been perpetrated. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's been like celebrations of Laurel Hubbard. I, I, what I've noticed is sort of the major rights groups I would have thought would celebrate that sort of laying low and, and an unfortunate backlash against her. Um I don't know if this is going to be a big issue. Maybe there's just not that many like trans high school athletes. I, I do know that in Connecticut, which is the state with among the most liberal laws on this two, it's just an undeniable fact that two young trans women did start to dominate track there and set, excuse me, a number of records. So make of that what you will, but to pretend that this isn't an issue. Cause like this hasn't happened yet in like Kentucky or whatever. It's just, it's sort of silly. I was speaking with a millennial friend of mine and she was talking about JK Rowling and saying, and laughing and saying like, it's so ridiculous that these, these multi millionaire uh, cultural influences are cherry picking and creating this sort of straw man of, uh, of like, ideological power that doesn't exist in their opponents. And she was saying like, she doesn't read Harry Potter anymore. And she got rid of her Harry Potter books because she doesn't want to be reading a transphobe. And that like she read, I don't think she actually did read JK Rowling's letter justifying her remarks about trans people, but she was saying that someone told me that 
Rowling is saying that like, oh, you're not allowed to say this and you're not allowed to say that anymore. And she was like, who's stopping you from saying anything? Like there is no, there is no, none of this backlash. And it was like a week later that I saw a couple of BBC journalists in the UK were censured and pilloried and had to like cancel their Twitter accounts and be reprimanded by their bosses for a documentary that they did about detransitioners. And it struck me that there might just be a big uh, void of ignorance amongst the general public about what's actually about the exact nature of the of the kind of backlash that we're talking about. One way yeah. of articulating that might be uh, just to reference the recent controversy with Chimamanda Adichie, the brilliant Nigerian feminist. Because I first saw about this saw this on your Twitter feed, and you were retweeting uh, a popular Nigerian American novelist. Is she? Akwaki Amizi, who was saying, I, I didn't quite know what to make of this tweet, but it said, I trust that there are other people who'll pick up machetes to protect us from harm that transphobes like Adichie and Rowling seek to perpetuate. I, however, will be in my garden with butterflies trying to figure out how to befriend the neighborhood crows. Find me on the gram. And I thought, wow, she's. <laughs> pick up machetes. Pick up machetes. Like, I heard you on your podcast make the point that, like, if you or I said, I trust there are other people who will pick up semi-automatic rifles or AR-15s. You don't have those in Australia. We don't have those. <laughs> we don't have unleash those dingo. I trust others will <laughs> unleash dingoes. <laughs> yeah, to, to like, punish our political opponents for their beliefs. But I'll be here in my garden with my butterflies counting crows or something, like, no one would believe us if we said that there's no there there and the violence, like that that isn't a no. a tacit call to violence. And this person was furious at Adichie. If you don't know Adichie, she's she was it Americana, her first novel that I don't know if it was her crazy. first. That was her breakout. That was her one, breakout yeah. novel. She's I have it. Brilliant... I've never read it. I've been putting it around for years. <laughs> I, I want to read I'm it. I'm glad now. you confessed to that because it's also on my it's it's on my like list of uh, of books, my big stack of books that I feel guilty for not having gotten around to reading. Um, yeah. But she's a brilliant and celebrated uh, novelist. And so from that tweet, I then found a Vox uh, piece. <laughs> I know the one you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, which is called Chimamanda Adichie's Cancel Culture Screed is a Dangerous Distraction. We're Having the Wrong Conversation, which said that basically this was a, she says, in a rush to praise the most quotable parts of Adichie's cutting essay, and if the listener is lost here, don't worry, this all will become clear. Many on the left have joined notorious transphobes, TERFs, and their allies, including signatories of the infamous 2020 Harper's Open Letter <laughs> Against the Concept of Cancel Culture. <laughs> and this author, in this review of another piece that I have as yet not read, uh, I mean, in the, in the trajectory and the chronology of my articulating how I came upon this, uh, she says, or they say, whoever wrote this article, I'm not sure if they're a they or a she. She's what? a she and a they. A she and a they. Okay, cool. Um, they, they say, worst of all, a conversation that should have been about transgender identity has been reframed. Now it's about how difference of opinion doesn't mean hatred. 
and how social media amplifies pathological and antisocial tendencies. Adichie's essay minimizes and obscures her original actions and speech. So I start thinking, okay, well, her essay must be a horrendous screed, and whatever she originally said must have been terrible. So it must have been like on the order of like, for example, asking people to pick up a machete to hurt. Yeah, or like saying that. other so people might have might have might want to pick up a machete. Not that I'm going to do it myself, but other people yes. will. Um, and then I went back and I read the article that's being referenced, and it's a beautiful, heartfelt attempt to articulate a sense of betrayal that this novelist has at the hands of a couple of her students, protégés, I suppose, people who she's influenced, who she feels have betrayed her by pillorying her, misrepresenting her, attacking her on social media, m- manipulating her name, using her name in to their advantage when it suits them, dragging her name through the mud when it doesn't suit them. And she ends up basically making a, a fairly predictable but very articulate Uh, a case against cancel culture and sort of performative social justice online. And what motivated her to write this piece was the fact that she has been so roundly attacked as being a hateful transphobe who deserves to be attacked with machetes because of saying this in a Channel 4 interview in 2017. I just want to take a listen to the whole context of what she said and I'll play it all the way out. In the book, you, you say, and I'm just quoting, feminism and femininity are not mutually exclusive. When there was a controversy in the last few days about Emma Watson, the actor posing in a pretty revealing outfit in Vanity Fair, was that feminism, do you think? Oh, yes, of course, because it was her choice and because she's a woman who is in a position to have a choice. There are women who might do that, but, but if it's coerced or if they're doing it from a place of no power then it's questionable. But clearly, I mean, it, it's a choice that she's made. And, and for me, what's even more troubling is that idea. There's a kind of puritanical strain in certain um, ideas of what feminism is that, that I find very worrying because it means that women cannot be sexual beings. What this is really is about that a woman is either the slut or she's the serious person and you have to choose. And I really quarrel with that. I really quarrel with that binary. Women have to be allowed to be many things. And so the idea that a woman has um, sort of posed in a way that's sexually provocative, it means she can't be taken seriously, I think is deeply misogynistic. Staying with this issue of feminism, femininity, does it matter how you've arrived at being a woman? I mean, for example, if you're a trans woman who grew up identifying as a man, who grew up enjoying the privileges of being a man... Does that take away from becoming a woman? Are you any less of a real woman? So when people talk about, you know, are trans women women, my feeling is trans women are trans women. And I think if you've been, if you've lived in the world as a man, with the privileges that the world accords to men, and then um, sort of change, switch gender, it, it's difficult for me to accept that then we can equate your experience with the experience of a woman who has lived from the beginning in the world as a woman and who has not been accorded those privileges that, that men are. I don't think it's a good thing to conflate everything into one. I don't think it's a good thing to talk about women's issues being exactly the same as the issues of trans women. What I'm saying is that gender is not biology. 
gender sociology. So that's what she had to say in 2017, and that's what triggered this whole thing of her being dragged through the mud as being as having the blood of trans children on her hands. And the article that she then wrote, I just want to read a, a bit of the final few paragraphs of it. She talks about criticizing people who the, so the social media savvy people who are choking on sanctimony and lacking in compassion, who can fluidly pontificate on Twitter about kindness, but are unable to actually show kindness. People whose social media lives are case studies in emotional aridity. People who don't realize that what they call a sophisticated take is really a simplistic mix of abstraction and orthodoxy. Sophistication, in this case, being a showing off of how au fait they are in the current version of ideological orthodoxy. People who wield the words violence and weaponize like tarnished pitchforks. People who depend on obfuscation, who have no compassion for anybody genuinely curious or confused. Ask them a question and you're told that the answer is to repeat a mantra. Ask again for clarity and be accused of violence. How ironic, speaking of violence, that it's one of these two who encouraged Twitter followers to pick up machetes and attack me. And so we have a generation of young people on social media so terrified of having the wrong opinions that they've robbed themselves of the opportunity to think and to learn and to grow. I've spoken to young people who tell me they're terrified to tweet anything, that they read and reread their tweets because they fear they'll be attacked by their own. The assumption of good faith is dead. What matters is not goodness, but the appearance of goodness. We're no longer human beings. We're now angels jostling to out-angel one another. God help us, it's obscene. It's almost like she's a good, gifted writer. It is. I mean, if I wasn't going to read Americana beforehand, I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to read her prose. I tell you what, it's incredibly powerful and completely dismissed, not just yeah. by a few Twitter trolls, but by the piece that I just read in Vox, a long piece calling what I just read a screed and a transphobic hate screed. I. I. My um, estimation of a lot of sort of cultural commentators has really fallen off a cliff in recent years. But I, and so Vox, for example, can still do really good policy journalism and still has some very talented people. Their average piece of sort of cultural criticism or or writing on identity is like is really bad. But this was sort of a, a new low for me. I, I was I'm not it's hard for me to be surprised that this or that is published these days. I was surprised that piece was published. It's a really crazy piece, especially given the context, which involved machete talk and and uh, it's just nuts but are you surprised it's published like I, I see the reaction to the rowling letter and i encourage people to go back and read jk rowling's letter and i see the the disjoint between that and my young millennial friend saying oh what the hell is she talking about yeah. and then i see what's happened to you and then i see what the response to the 2017 channel 4 interview was with Adichie. And then I see that Ezra Klein has had to leave Vox and go to work, work for the New York Times, and Matt Iglesias has left. They founded the the place. He felt that the... Well, we know, We to be fair, we know more about... Um, we basically know that Matt left in part because of that. I, I, at least I don't have any reason to think Ezra left for that 
reason. I, I, although who knows? Maybe uh, I'm not. I'm just not sure. I would put Ezra in that bucket. To be fair, well, we don't. Uh, we don't know, but we know what was happening at the time, and we yeah. <laughs> right, and we know that he he left. We don't know why, uh, and we know that Andrew Sullivan was fired, and we know that. I mean, there is a long list of people who we could go through: Matt Taibbi yeah. and and Katie. Who and Barry Weiss being driven out of the Times? Uh, oh yeah, no, I mean there's there's definitely some like really crazy stuff going on at some of these publications. Um, it's it's bad, and it you know it, it's why like if you wanted to really understand the the transports issue or the youth transition issue, unfortunately, you can no longer really go to most mainstream sources. I'm not sure this is like a permanent issue because maybe the pendulum will swing back, but I'm just like I'm. Uh, well, I'm contradicting myself because I just said I'm often not surprised. I, I, I still am pretty shocked by what gets published. When I read a story on like a subject where I know a fair amount and just see the sorts of claims that are given airtime, it's shocking. There's there's no standards on any story sort of having to do with like hot button social justice issues. Uh, evidence goes out the window. It's really disturbing. I did like the tweets by uh, Phoebe Maltz-Bovey about the Adichie essay. Did you see Phoebe? talking about it she was sort of live tweeting as she was reading the vox piece <laughs> no and, she's great I yeah, so. Uh, she so the first one was about pride month which i know that you had uh you had addressed she because in the vox piece the vox piece criticizing adichie says it's not precisely clear what prompted adichie's essay though many observers have questioned her motives in choosing to publish it during pride month that timing along with the letter's tone has made Adichie's post come off as a direct attack against the individual students the essay refers to. And Phoebe writes, I'll read the rest of this later, but one, you can't infer things based on the month they were written in. And two, (laughs) the author named the individuals she discusses, so isn't that picking on them? She says, sorry, I'm now obsessed with She doesn't name them, you mean, right? What's that? She said she named them, but she didn't name them in the essay. She just made it very clear who uh, who they were referring to. Yeah, that's right. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Uh, and then Phoebe says, that's Phoebe's error. Uh, she says, sorry, but I'm now obsessed with the idea that someone might have written an otherwise good or even important essay, but because they didn't remember which identity group's month it was at the time, <laughs> never mind, it's yeah. trash. Or that someone, let alone a major novelist and thinker, is sitting around deciding what to write about and so turns to the whose month is it calendar for topic inspiration. <laughs> uh, she writes, if someone was transphobic in june they'd have been transphobic in july if they wouldn't have been transphobic in july you can't be like well it was june so i'm sorry but this is also <laughs> ridiculous <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. insa- it's such a dumb i mean I've, I've gotten that because my atlantic article, the most controversial thing i wrote on this it was for the july august issue but it was put up like late in june it went online so it was during pride it's like <laughs> guys let's get a little bit more substantive than that please <laughs> is there a way out of this um, I, I do, uh, you know, I do think things are going to calm down in the long run. People make fun of me for saying that because some people want it to be the case that we're headed toward like a Maoist cultural revolution in the States. I think there's a million reasons to think that's not the case. Uh, not least of which is like all the backlash, like just to cancel culture or whatever you want to call it. A lot of which I think is a little bit overblown and don't agree with, but I, I don't know. I, I think there's huge backlash. I think a large and increasing number of, of journalists, um, myself included, have been lucky enough to make a living in ways that where we're sort of uncancelable. Um, it's silly I even have to talk about that because I have so few opinions that are at all controversial in, in a broader American context. But yeah, I just think pushing for liberal values, pushing for open conversation, I think there's a real uh, appetite for that. So um, 
yes, as always, capitalism will fix everything. I mean, I worry whether or not there is that much of an appetite for it. I, I, <laughs> I was traveling with a, a buddy of mine who's an English guy who lives in in Europe and he's a journalist and this was post-Brexit, post-Trump and I was singing from the same hymn sheet that you just were uh, saying, look, everything's going to sort itself out. And he was like, I mean, has liberalism ever been that popular? Like liberal, <laughs> liberalism, you know, traditional. Like sort we're of, such losers. We're such <laughs> losers with our principles. We 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 got kind of lucky during the Enlightenment that uh, yeah. a cabal of influential elites bought into liberalism, and we generated basically all of the wealth and scientific progress of the past few centuries. But it's ne- the man in the street has never been crazy about like Voltaire's dictum of like I disagree with what you say, but I'll defend. To, to my death, you're right to say it. Most yeah. people are like, shut the fuck up. I don't agree with you. <laughs> my tribe is right. And most of history is tribes warring against each other and and jostling in a zero-sum game for zero-sum power. That's and true, but people, but people really don't like being told that they can't say stuff is the flip side of that. And they especially don't like being told they can't say the emperor is naked when the emperor is naked. So I think that's a, a countervailing force. I agree with what you just said completely. Liberalism is a tough sell to people. And I think one of our major errors as liberals uh, and Trump's election was sort of the best example of this is we just assume sort of like urbane liberal cosmopolitanism was like this, this strong and growing and stable force when I think we're always going to have to fight for it. But I, I do think people do not like being told, you can't say that, I'm going to try to get you fired. Um, so I think we have that going for us. That's true. But uh, I mean, we may not, we may have that, either we have that going for us or uh, right-wing fascists also have that going for That's them. also true. That's, that's the worry. Be that, yeah, yeah, exactly. That the, that the left becomes so censorious that the backlash against it is itself also censorious from the other side. And that's what you're seeing in some of these anti-trans bills in some US states, for example, where like it doesn't always default back to our version of open-minded, progressive, small-L liberalism. Sometimes it yep. it swings back. Sometimes the, the, the pirate ship in my mangled metaphor gets higher and higher on either side and the middle gets, gets squeezed out. Um, all right. What, what's uh, what's one takeaway from your book that you want to leave people with uh, to encourage them to get on a, a plane to China, Jesse? <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of stuff that I think people might find interesting about the implicit association test, which is like the most popular. Oh yeah. I wanted to get, that's right. I'm glad you reminded me of that. I wanted to get to that because I think that it's become a, it's become another one of these shibboleths in, on on the left, along with insisting that people mouth the catechism, trans women are women without interrogating what they mean by that. Uh, there is also the catechism about implicit bias and how we're all implicitly racist uh, without interrogating what that actually looks like, so can you can you give us a sense of what the genesis of of the implicit bias test was? Yeah, so in 1998, a pair of researchers, uh, Mazarin Banaji, she's at Harvard now, Anthony Greenwald, University of Washington, they introduced the implicit association test, the IAT. Basically, it flashes stimuli, and um, you know, it'll say uh, hit the I key on your keyboard. If you see a a good word, a positive word, or a black face, hit the E key. If you see a white face or a negative word, or it'll flip those, and it it measures your reaction time to try to determine your level of implicit bias against black people. In that version of the test, there's other versions involving other marginalized groups, and um, 
for a long time, this was advertised as a test that could reveal your unconscious bias, your implicit bias. And it became, and still is, a, a darling of diversity trainings everywhere. Countless papers written about it, countless glowing uh, instances of glowing media coverage. It turns out, as we've now known for a while, that the test basically doesn't predict anything. There's like a little slice of a there there, but even the people who created the test said that it cannot be used to diagnose individuals as being likely to engage in racist acts. And that was long their claim. That was like this, this very provocative claim that you take this test, you sit at a computer, it tells you how likely you are to act in a racist way. Uh, my book chapter, which was adapted from an article I wrote for New York Magazine's website about this, is just explaining why Americans are so eager to believe that racism is this thing you can sort of diagnose in the individual soul and fix it. Because in my view, our, our ongoing racial disparities, the ones that still exist, some of which are quite bad, can't really be reduced to like individual actors. They're much more structural than that. But I think um, as a culture, we're, we, this idea of sort of individual responsibility for addressing racism appeals to us. I also think it appeals to powerful people because like that's a much more palatable solution than redistribution or changing the law or reigning in the police, stuff like that. That's yes, that's great, and the, I, I'm going to devote an entire episode or many to what I think of as being the 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 way that progressive middle class elites ignore class and yes. income inequality and wealth disparity as being the real problem here. It's like it's very easy to be to go to like racial awareness workshops, but the way that race maps onto class and uh, and a lack of privilege is the kind of elephant in the room that we don't actually want to address. But I won't get you to opine on that right now because our, our time is up. Jesse, thank thank you. I appreciate it. And I look forward to getting a beer with you under the stairs when we can <laughs> finally emerge from lockdown. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you.